0: Open up uh, your Bibles with me. Excited for this morning. Uh, It's going to be a slow start. We'll pick up pace, although I will promise you that in this new study on the book of Revelation, uh, the first three chapters will go a little slower. I think you will be shocked, I think, surprised as you look and we study together just how much of this um, has significance for the church today. Um, And of course, when you think of Revelation, you probably actually think more chapter 4 and on. And so, but uh, we're going to march our way through this book, and I think um, there's a lot here for us. And hopefully it's going to be an encouraging time. And maybe for many of you, if you have not studied the book of Revelation, not Revelations, so just, you know, Revelation, uh, this is probably then for you, I would say, It'll be a start of which is a lifetime, like all of our, really, our study of Scripture truly is. But um, every time I come to books that I would call on this side of a little more difficult, and we're going to talk about why this is a little more difficult than maybe uh, an epistle. Um, And it's just that as you grow and you study, and particularly as you understand the rest of God's Word. The rest of the uh, scriptures, especially the Old Testament, certain symbolisms that you get into with Revelation, you go, oh, especially right now I'm actually reading Isaiah with one of my discipleship groups, and you're going, well, Revelation sounds an awful lot like Isaiah, and that's not accidental. Um, And so, It's a beginning, and if you don't understand everything the first time through, hopefully that's not completely on me and a lack of clarity, um, but it does take some time as we look together and and look to study. But let me ask the Lord's blessing, and then we'll begin our study this morning. Father, thank you that uh, we do have an opportunity to come now, that we can open your word, that we can be instructed that even when things Lord, take more work in the sense of a broader understanding of your scripture that we would see that as uh, a blessing, Lord, that there is even still yet so much that we can learn and grow and that we as well would not see it simply as an exercise of gathering more information or that we might know more um, than to uh, just display it for others to see, but that it would actually be uh, along with understanding that it leads to a devotional Uh, fervor and a love for you and a desire as John comes to the end of the book of Revelation that we would desire Christ to come and to come quickly. And so we just ask now that that would be uh, the outcome of our study this morning. Our love for Christ would grow and our desire to see it happen quickly, even if it does not, but that would be the desire of our hearts. So we just ask this in your son's name. Amen. For those of you who were with us when we did the Sermon on the Mount, so that's a long time ago, Matthew chapter 5, and then we finished, you know, all the way through Matthew chapter 28, we talked about when we did Matthew chapter 5, this idea of understanding the Sermon on the Mount took more work. And the reason it took more work is because it assumed information. It assumed a lot of knowledge, particularly with the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And so it became—make sure we're getting—well, that's fun. I just got to remember, every slide is two behind. That's fun. We'll see if we get it right. Uh, But when we came to that, we understood that this was built on something— Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was just not out of thin air. And even the way he structured the Beatitudes and referred to things, and he used wisdom language. And your understanding of wisdom literature, particularly, I think, the book of Proverbs, really helps you engage and understand what Jesus is teaching and how he's presenting that Sermon on the Mount. But we also use this imagery. We use the imagery of the mountain. And I think of that in the same way as you come to the book of Revelation, that if you were to do something— For example, to climb a mountain. If you go and you spend the money and you want to uh, climb Mount Everest, you need a few things. Most of us, if you don't like me, I don't really know anything about climbing. It's going to take a fair amount of research to go, what tools do I need to get there to be successful? I don't know any of those tools. Maybe you climbers can, can tell me maybe a little bit afterwards. But I understand there are certain things you need or you're going to fail a world i know a little bit better and it's a little more nebraskan Um, i think of the nature of if you were to go deer hunting and you went out and you sat in a deer stand but you brought no bow and no rifle how successful do you think you'd be at actually hunting deer not very unless you're really fast and you can wrestle that deer down which i don't think most of us can do and so you need the right tools for the right job to understand and to accomplish the task. And I think that's true of Revelation. There are certain tools you need to have to understand Revelation because there's an assumption. There's an assumption that you know certain things. Just like in Matthew with that Jewish audience, right? We come at it from a different perspective without having actually grown up. We, we, most of us, you didn't grow up in a Jewish synagogue. You didn't grow up... Um, with all those traditions. And maybe you grew up in the church with a kind of slim understanding of the Old Testament, but the greater our understanding of the Old Testament is, you understand that's why, for example, Matthew begins with the genealogy. Because Jesus being the son of David is really, really, really important. And he has to establish that, or it's just a non-starter for his readers. And Revelation doesn't just assume the Old Testament, although you need to know your Old Testament well, it even assumes, again, a lot of the Gospels. You need to know Matthew chapter 24. And hopefully we will, as we get through, through here, we'll, we'll recall um, the all of it discourse. You need to know the epistles. You need to know all of the text of Scripture that comes to bear. And so I've heard it said, and I think this is a good statement, that Revelation is the most biblical book. Now, every book in the Bible, by definition, right, is biblical. But it, the person that was saying that was saying it to highlight that it uses the scriptures. It alludes to the scriptures more often than any other book. And it actually does so in a very unique way, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Of, it doesn't do it by quoting, right? It does it by alluding to different bits of imagery and symbolism, drawing heavily on other books, particularly Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. And so I just want to frame, I want to begin this study, because we're not going to get very far. What tools do you need to have to understand the book of Revelation And we're going to look at that this morning. And really, before we dive into Revelation, this is a little like a prerequisite. This is before you get to the base of the mountain. You need these things in your tool belt, or you're not going to be set up for success. And so the first tool that you need of these four tools is you need a proper hermeneutic. A literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. All big words, but I think worth brief discussion as you come to understand Revelation. Because Revelation, it's probably more important than any other book that you actually go and say, we're going to use the same interpretive method. We're going we're to approach it the way you would approach Daniel, the way you would approach Ezekiel, the way you would approach Matthew. And that involves what we have, we talk about here, coming to this idea of what is known as the literal grammat- historical grammatical Hermeneutic and all those terms are there and they're intentional. This idea of literal, you're coming to the text. This is not an idea of wooden literalism. In other words, everything has context. And if the context is, it's meant to be symbolic. There's reasons why when we get to Revelation, that Satan, instead of being the big bad dictator, he is the dragon. There's reasons for that. Not least of which it's way more interesting. And causes more imagery in your mind than if he just said he's a big dictator. No, he's, he's the dragon. But we also understand that's a certain type of symbolism, a certain type of literature. And so when I say literal, I just simply mean taking words in their usual and or most basic sense. That is, you read it like you would read anything else. And you assume, unless the context tells you otherwise, you're reading exactly what you are Reading. It's not to say that the Bible is not special revelation. It is, but it's written in a way that is understandable and that is clear. And this becomes important for all of our study of Scripture. And so, actually, we're going to talk a little bit more um, hermeneutics. And we talk a lot in the discipleship groups about how to understand the text because we got to be on the same page and understanding, or we're never going to come to the same um, end. In other words, if you have a, a destination, right? And one person has a map and another person has another map, if the only way they're going to get to the same place the same way is, is they understand it the same way. And so this involves recognizing, though, the genre, which of course becomes this idea of understanding the grammar, understanding that if it's poetic, it's poetry. But don't mistake poetry for if it's history, if it's historical, if it's a gospel. If it's prophetic, understand it as prophetic. And so when we come to Revelation, this is a key thing What kind of book is this? And Revelation actually kind of breaks the mold. But I don't think when you go, oh, this isn't like any other book, that you go, we can throw out anything else that we know, and this is just unique in its own way. And many people look at the secular literature and start to import things, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't need to do that and look at all of what's known as apocalyptic literature. I think you take Revelation and you understand that it is at least has... These markers of two different styles. And one, if you look at chapter one, is it's a very classic epistle. And by epistle, I mean it's a very classic letter. It's written, John, verse four, to the seven churches. Now, one through three, which we're going to talk more about. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ given to john for these churches but it does follow a fairly similar pattern of what you would see from the apostle paul and if you were to flip all the way to revelation 22 you would find a very similar closing to a letter and so you go and i want to go it's an epistle this is easy it's just like paul but then you keep reading and you go well this isn't quite like paul for those of you who've read revelation it's a little bit different than paul and and it's not just that epistle nature but it is a letter right those letter to these seven churches, but at the same time, he says it is verse three, hear the words of the prophecy. And that should trigger in your mind, oh, so this is different. It's a little different than what Paul has done, say, in the epistle to the Ephesians or the letter to the Philippians. This is prophetic. And when you see prophetic. One of the dangers for all of us is because we use it in English and prophecy and the idea of end times prophecy. And I think in One Danger in General, when you come to Revelation is you start to think about all the kind of very intense images and that everything becomes about a someone making a future prophecy. But in Scripture, in fact, most often when it talks about prophecy or a prophet, the prophet is not giving new revelation. The prophet is actually giving And retelling old revelation. When you look at your prophets, your major prophets and your minor prophets in the Old Testament, most of the time, it is going to be, if you had already read Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you start going, wow, this sounds like he keeps referring back to Deuteronomy over and over again, and Israel and their relationship to the Mosaic covenant and their obedience and their disobedience. That's because he is. And yes, sometimes there's more information but in general they're simply declaring maybe there's direct revelation since god saying go tell my people this but you realize it's rooted in those very that very covenant that god made with his people but a lot of times it's just that idea of they're they're the spokesman for god it doesn't always have to be just about the future but there are places Isaiah and Daniel certain sections where clearly He's talking about something that is not near, but something that is far. And Revelation does follow that pattern. There are certain things that are near and understanding, I think in 1 through 3. And then you start to get into chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter uh, 6 and on. And you start to see, wow, this seems to be far and that becomes of how do you approach the book of Revelation the way we're going to approach the book of Revelation is understanding that this is, just like Isaiah and Daniel in the most common sense, something that you are looking for in the future. The same way we understood the all that discourse, that there are things that are prophesied that have not come to pass. And it becomes very important you recognize that nature of the prophecy But when I say, just back to the idea of this idea of uh, interpretation of hermeneutics, I don't mean that, again, you take it in a completely wooden sense. In other words, you take poetry for poetry. You take history as history, parables as parables, letters as letters. That's where you start, unless the context points you in a different direction. That second word of historical, it is to say that you understand that these things happened in a real place, in a real time to a real people or a real person in some place in history that becomes important because if you look at for example it's one of the reasons I take revelation as future I think it's one of the strongest arguments is when you look at the prophecies in Isaiah concerning Christ so that was probably the major prophet that Matthew looked to throughout our study and Matthew over and over and this is the fulfillment this is the fulfillment this is filled this is fulfilled this, this etc over and over again he understood those prophecies by Isaiah and Jesus understood prophecies by Daniel in Matthew 24 to have real significance real meaning real fulfillment in a real person in a real place. And so I think it's just natural when you come to Revelation that you, again, go, seems to be the same here. Just as if I was a uh, Old Testament saint reading Isaiah, I would have been a little bit probably confused, right? Maybe not that smart to begin with, but I'd read through these things, and I'd go, how does this work together? And of course, when you get to Matthew, you start to go, oh, This makes sense how this comes together in Christ. And I think we'll have a similar understanding. Even when we go through Revelation, I think we can understand more of it than you maybe think as we approach it. I think it's less confusing than people make it out to be. But I promise you that for everyone, probably in the end, there'll be a moment of, I didn't know how that was going to work out. And the Lord will organize it in such a way that you'll go, oh. That makes absolute sense, once it actually happens in time and in history. But again, there's more that we can't know in general. We saw in the Alva Discourse over and over again, you're not going to know the day or the hour, so this is not going to be Josh knows when the world is going to end kind of sermon um, at any point in Revelation, but it is to say we do know a lot. We do know a lot about what is going to happen, and particularly some things that are very encouraging, and by the nature of Revelation, that we do need But we understand that through this approach of understanding the scriptures for what it is. And that's important because we're trying to move towards this idea of being objective. It's not simply something subjective. We're trying to avoid this idea of um, what does Revelation mean to you? What does this text mean to you? And to say, no, 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 the, the text means something apart from you. It meant something then and it means something now and it means the same thing. Now, it might have... A application or implication or significance for us today in a unique way, but it doesn't mean another thing. And I think that becomes extremely important. And for those I didn't talk about, I used this term, little historical grammatical hermeneutics. If you want to look up hermeneutic, you want a definition real quick for those uh, who don't use that term very often. I just basically, all I mean by that term, hermeneutic, is the art and the science of interpretation. And so the way you come to scripture. So I want to illustrate that. Flip to Revelation chapter 12. I just want to give a good example from my own personal study. I try to, I don't turn my brain off, but especially when I'm getting ready and I'm studying things, I'm trying to read fast. I'm trying to get through not answering every question so that it doesn't take me you know, weeks to get through like reading Revelation. It's like, no, I want to get to Revelation. I want to get it through and in 45 minutes. And so I keep going, even if I have questions. Um, just as an example, you come to Revelation chapter 12. And if you read these first six verses, and I remember I, I'm kind of glancing through, and I've studied Revelation before. And there's just certain things, though, you're going, well, this sounds like familiar. But you really do have to look at this text and understand um, who is. The woman, And once you actually, I think, sit there and think about it, you, you can get to the right answer. Again, it's not rocket science, but you won't get there right away without understanding the context of what's going on. So just, just look with me, Revelation 12. Uh, and it says, "...a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with the child, she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth." Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten thorns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, threw them into the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. My kids, they like this kind of stuff. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 12, uh, 1,260 days. So we'll just leave that. We'll just parachute in. And I know there's context to all of this. But for most of you, if you haven't read Revelation 12 this past week, uh, you might go, that sounds crazy. I mean, that, does that not sound a little bit like, what are we talking about? Is this, okay, is it a literal woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet? And are crowned with 12 stars. Or what are we talking about? This goes back to the idea of symbolism. And Revelation's going to use it over and over again. And sometimes it's very clear, say in chapter one and chapter two, when it talks about the seven lampstands. And it tells you right away, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You love it when it does that. Other times it gives these illusions and it doesn't always spell them out. But if you've been studying the book of Revelation or you've been reading chapters all the way up to 11, and you understand there's been this shift back towards, away from the church, back to the nation of Israel, you start to see things like 12 stars and go, huh, I wonder what the 12 stars are. This would make sense that this is a woman that is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can kind of get to verse 5 and go, this almost sounds like Mary, right? Right? Mary gives birth to Jesus, who is a male child, who's the ruler of all the nations. Justice, rod of iron, caught up with God to his throne. But then again, you go back to chapter, verse 1, and you realize, no, this makes way more sense that out of Israel, in other words, the Messiah comes through those 12 tribes, obviously a very specific tribe in Judah, and that's where the Messiah comes. But you also read, What's going on with the dragon? And it's just an example to illustrate how this becomes important because you understand that the dragon represents Satan and that there's going to become a period of time where he is going to wipe out and persecute the Jews. In fact, he says the one th- a third of the stars of heaven and he's going to throw them there. that. He's going to persecute and that the woman, and I think, again, understanding you, go, Israel is going to flee to the wilderness. And it becomes really important and really key when you see the number. 1260. And I grant you, when we come to Revelation, we're going to talk about the number seven. And I I have a friend who says this, where uh, when people start talking about numbers, and this could mean this, and this means this, he just turns his brain off. You know, it's like, I, I can't listen anymore. It's like, well, seven means perfect, and it means this. But there's actually places where numbers are really important, and they do mean things. This is one of them. But you don't think of it as days. If you actually do the math and you go 360 and you're going to do that as a year, you're going to get to three and a half years. And then you start clicking. You go three and a half years. Now I know something about three and a half years. Something happens at three and a half years, right? You start to think of the seven years of the tribulation period and three and a half years being half of that seven years. And so you start to realize, oh, all those things I've heard, or maybe it was taught in Sunday school, there's reasons people teach those things three and a half years, because 1260 pops up over and over and over again. And it's not just in Revelation, it pops up in Daniel as well. And so that's just a good illustration in in Revelation where you have to work hard, but these symbols do have to mean something. And you don't just get to decide without context or based on the text what they mean. And now if you read that, and we won't read it again, but I promise you, and you go, okay, so the woman is Israel. Israel is going to be persecuted by the dragon and they're going to be cast out into the wilderness for that, that, that 300, three and a half years. You're going to, this makes sense. But again, I know we all bring a little bit of that background. You've seen the Left Behind movies and you go, oh, you know, all those things. But it's like, no, th- this comes from uh, the text. And yes, there's a lot of things out there that fill in the blanks maybe too, uh, too much. But those are important and they are important to Daniel and they're important to the scripture and important to understanding revelation. And so the New Testament, obviously, imports just in general, not just revelation, but the whole New Testament idea of uh, imports from the Old Testament. I like this saying, Uh, one professor of mine said, symbolism is not hard because it's ambiguous. Rather, it is hard because it is so Precise. Symbolism is not hard because it's ambiguous. That is unclear. Rather, it is hard because it's precise. I think you'll find that it's true in Revelation. It's actually what's hard about it is it seems so clear. How can that happen is usually the challenge. Um, not because it's not clear. People go, I, they, it's super clear, but they go, that can't happen. And then they change uh, their view on something. But what you need... That conviction, that interpretive understanding of I'm going to take this in the exact way that God meant it and understand it and believe it, even if it is something that is difficult. You need that conviction that your scripture, your Bible, it means something. And you fight for that and understand it. And again, wrestle with the text and prove from the context that this is what it means. And understand it doesn't mean just anything you you want it to mean. And so you need a literal, historical, grammatical, hermeneutic. Or else, if you come to Revelation with completely, it could mean anything, you're going to get discouraged really fast, right? There's got to be some rules that guide you and say, John meant it a certain way. The message came from God through Christ, through through the angel, through all these visions. And it came because he wants us to understand it. In verse 3, blessed is he who reads and he who hears the words of the prophecy. These things were written for our good and meant to be understood. The second thing I'd say you really need to comprehend is you need a comprehensive understanding of the Old and the New Testament, which this becomes an interesting challenge for all of us, because we're all coming at different walks within our Christian life. Some of you are very familiar with Scripture. Some of you are less familiar with Scripture. In general, this is the part of the sermon which is, this is why you continually engage with your Bible. This is why you continue to read the Scriptures day in and day out, year after year out, because you pick up more and more and more. And so often the things, like for me, even with Revelation, it's not that I don't know some of these things, but I need to be reminded of these things. Things that at certain different times are on the front of my brain, right? It's all right here for a sermon. But then over time I start studying other things, start doing other things, and they kind of head to the back. And it brings it back to the forefront. But as I said, Revelation assumes you know the rest of your Bible. I find it interesting. There are no formal quotes in the book of Revelation. But uh, Dr. Robert Thomas says, out of the 404 verses in Revelation, 278 allude to the Old Testament scriptures. So think about that. 404 total verses, 278. That is over half of the book of Revelation. Allude. And by allude, right, it just means that it's using that language. It's borrowing language intentionally. Not common language to the first century per se, but common language to the scriptures. It assumes an understanding of the history of Israel, uh, the prophecies of Daniel, the future kingdom, the restoration of a remnant from that Isaiah talks about Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, If we were to illustrate this, we won't, Um, we're going to illustrate it a different way than this, but one way you could, if you want to write this down, if you look at Revelation 19 through 22, we did a little bit of this with the Olivet Discourse. To understand Revelation 19 through 22, you really have to understand Daniel chapter 7, and you have to then understand Jesus in Matthew 24. If you approach Matthew 24 without Daniel 7, you're going to be really confused. If you approach Revelation 19-22 without Daniel 7 and Matthew 24, again, it's going to bring confusion. You have to have this comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the way I want to specifically illustrate this is with the number seven. And again, this isn't where we get into numerology and we try to, you know, show you how all this equals this. And if you add this together, then, you know, All all the secrets will become clear. But it's simply this understanding that you, as you study, and as we study Revelation, you're going to see the number seven over and over and over again. And no, it is not Mickey Mantle's number, which is my favorite number. It's not why it's in Revelation. Lucky seven. No. It's because if you understand the rest of your Bible, you're going to start to notice over and over again in the Hebrew mind, they use seven over and over and over again. And because of that, it starts to almost have this mystical way about it. And you go, well, seven's mystical. It's not meant to be that. And I hope to maybe clarify this a little bit. It simply represents fullness or strength or completeness. And so just to use an English knowledge before we look to scripture and just talk real quickly about it, uh, if, if I was to go grab donuts— we have a Dunkin' Donuts now off 168th Street. If I was to go grab my kids' donuts, even my kids know that if I bring home 11, they're going to go, where's the other donut? Right? Because in, in our culture, donuts come in a dozen. That's, what, that's how we use it, because they don't come in anything else. That's when you get the discount. You get a dozen. You don't get 10. You don't get 11. You get a dozen. It's that kind of number that we have in sports, I don't know why, it's just a cultural thing, but we like threes. Horses, triple ground. Baseball, triple crown. Hockey, hat trick, three goals. We just use those numbers in that way to say they had a good game. It's complete. It's whole. And in Hebrew, it's in a very simple way. (laughs) Uh, Same way I'm coming up on a a 20-year high school reunion. Which I don't think we'll probably have, because we never have them, apparently, with my class. We're not social enough. But if I told you I went to my 19-year reunion, just another illustration, uh, last week, you would go, well, that's weird, right? Because you don't have reunions at 19 years. You have reunions at 10 and 20, etc. Maybe 15 and 20 or something like that. We don't work in groups of seven, but Israel does. That's how they view, it's, it's when it has seven, it's complete. It is whole, which is a pretty good number to pick if you think about it, because they root it all the way back into their understanding of creation. And so let me just kind of walk through this, and if you guys want to, you can jot these down. I won't look at all the references, just kind of walk through in my head the Old Testament. But um, when you look at creation, right, God made the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And I thought as a little kid, this made no sense. I didn't think God needed a rest. Correct. God does not need to rest on the seventh day, right? But on the seventh day, he rests, and it is a symbol of completion, right? That it is complete. The work is done. It's that idea of signifying completeness. You get a little further in the Bible, and of course, chapter 3 is sin enters the world. But when Cain murders his brother Abel— it talks about if anyone touches Cain, because he has a symbol on his forehead, if you can remember that, back in uh, Genesis chapter four, he, if you touch Cain, you're gonna get the sevenfold vengeance of the Lord. That doesn't mean that you get poked seven times. It's just saying you get the full wrath of God if you mess with Cain. Noah, he brings seven pairs of clean animals. Jacob worked for Seven years. You go to Pharaoh's dream, he had seven cows, and in Joseph's interpretation, there's seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. That is, you're going to have the completeness of both riches and of poverty. There's seven years in the cycle of the Jewish calendar. The whole idea of a, a slave working for six years and being freed in the seventh is this idea that it represents he's finished, right? He's completed his service. Therefore, he is released on the seventh year. Seven days is the amount of time a spouse mourned the loss of their husband or their wife, because that would signify a beginning. They mourn, and it is completed. Seven days was the length of the Passover celebration, where you would not eat leavened bread. Seven lamps in the tabernacle, representing uh, the full spirit of God, which is going to be another question here when we get to Verse 4 of Revelation, what do we, uh, how do we understand that the, the seven spirits who are before his throne, I think this will help us, this understanding. Um, the altar to be prepared before the day of the atonement was prepared seven days beforehand so that it was fully and completely prepared. When you brought your sacrifice to the priest, he would sprinkle the blood seven times to represent that it is fully forgiven. It's not mystical. It's not a magic number that, it, oh, there it's seven it was a way of saying it is complete; it is full. If you were unclean, the quarantine in Israel—you guessed it—lasted seven days to represent. After that seventh day, you are fully cleansed. It talks about in the Old Testament, a sin against God would get you a sevenfold punishment, just like the sevenfold vengeance. Just saying that God is going to punish sin; He hates all sin. It's complete. Think of Jericho. They walk around Jericho seven days. That's another good question in my little Sunday school mind. Why? Why seven days? Just to say that they demonstrate it was fully in circle. It has meaning and understanding to it. A woman uh, tells Naomi about Ruth, that she's more blessed than if she had seven husbands. Well, That's weird. She's saying that this is a complete and full blessing, just the way they use that number the psalmist in Psalm 119 says that he rises up seven times a day to worship God, meaning that he always worships the Lord. I could really go on and on and on and on. This happens again and again and again. So when we pick it up in Revelation and you start to see 7, you go, oh, that's because it's all over their understanding. This is complete. This is fullness. And again, that helps us to demystify that term in this way. In fact, I'll go on a little bit into the New Testament. There are seven sins uh, that the Lord hates, which means he hates every sin. A righteous man can fall seven times and uh, be helped up, meaning that God will always rescue them. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. There are seven Beatitudes. Peter goes on and asks Jesus, should I forgive someone seven times? He's simply asking, do I fully forgive them? where Jesus says, yeah, seven times 70 which is kind of completely completely full, you know. The idea of true true truth. And so when you come to 7 in the book of Revelation, an understanding of the Old Testament, the use of that number and the way that John is using it in Revelation, and the way you can even say that Christ is presenting this imagery, it becomes extremely helpful because when you get to this we get to it in Revelation, over and over and over again, it's going to be using this term of completion. You might ask yourself, why seven churches? Why not eight? Why not four? Why not five? Well, I think seven churches are chosen for specific reasons that, yes, it seems to be each church has something unique about it that's wrong uh, that they're getting written to about, but but it makes sense. And as you look at Revelation, you look at chapters one through three, you have the Seven churches. If you look at chapters 4 through 7, you have the seven lampstands and the seven stars. Chapter 8 through 11, you have the seven trumpets. 12 through 15, you have the seven signs. 16 through 18, you have the seven bowls. And then 19 through 22, you have the seven, which roughly they say, seven last things, which, what are they? Seven angels, seven thunder, seven heads, seven plagues, seven kings on seven mountains. Again, it's nothing mystical. It just represents... The fullness of what you get. But as an American in 2022, you jump into Revelation without an understanding of the Old Testament and just that one thing, that number, not understanding why it's there and you will not understand exactly what is being communicated. And that's just a small taste, I think, of what is assumed. And there's a lot more complicated things, I think, as well as with, say, how does Isaiah, how does... Ezekiel and how does Daniel fit in, but that's just a good example. You have to have a comprehensive understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and this is, what does that mean for you? It means year in, year out, day in and day out, read your Bible. The more you read your Old Testament, the more you read Isaiah, the more you read Ezekiel, the more you will understand Revelation. And If you come to Revelation and and you kind of have this moment of, I don't understand anything, It's probably because you need more time. And yes, you know, you kind of read your Bible in a year starting in January. It can be kind of a a hard, tough sledding through the Old Testament. But this is where it becomes extremely important. Your understanding as you come to the gospel. Because it's importing all of that in. And you have to know it to understand exactly what is going on. Thirdly, so you need to have this perspective. This understanding of the proper hermeneutic. You need to understand your Old Testament and your New Testament, but you also need to have a perspective, I think, this way, of Revelation that is not just about future prophecy, particularly. That, that Revelation has significance for you and for me. But you come to Revelation, and it's part of the reason people don't study it, because they go, this has something to do with the future and nothing to do with me, and you couldn't be further from the truth. If you look at verse 3 and you see this idea of blessing, how many books in the New Testament, how many books in the Old Testament say, if you read this, you will be blessed? Revelation says it. And I would encourage you to say, hey, I'll take that exactly for what it means. That blessed is the one who studies. So if it's difficult and you're going, I don't know if it's it's confusing. And again, I would say jump in, dive in. And he repeats it again in 22, where 22.7 he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You don't want to come at Revelation just out of charts and graphs and information. Now, charts and graphs are helpful, and hopefully along the way here, we'll bring some up to try to give some clarity, because we all learn differently, and some of us learn, and most of us are helped by visual aids, but it can't be just about information. There has to be a devotional aspect, and when you approach Revelation from this devotional aspect, the one thing you will start to notice over and over and over again, and we'll talk about this in a moment, the central theme of Revelation, is there's a lot of information about the future, in the sense of a lot of information about judgment, a lot of information about uh, uh, different things. But over and over again, what's emphasized is Jesus Christ. What's emphasized is Christ. And there are, there's different people, you know, 35, 36, 37 different names and titles for Christ throughout Revelation. And just to look at some of them, you start to see, oh, this is a book not about just, quote-unquote, the future. This is a book about the coming of Christ. And if you love Christ, you're going to love Revelation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is to say, not only is he the one revealing, there's a real sense in which this is where he is. That is, he comes and he reveals himself. He comes in Revelation not in a manger, not as the man... He comes as the conqueror. It's different when he comes again and comes for judgment. He's called in, uh, verse 5, the faithful witness. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn him over him. Yes, amen. I am. And you would think, of course, we fully affirm the Trinity that Christ is fully God. But you see eight and you're going, look at this is Christ. He is fully God. In fact, he can claim, verse eight, that I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and was is and who is to come. The Almighty. And that's just through eight verses. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, Christ is exalted. And if you find yourself starving for uh, being amazed and exalting Christ, I don't think you can go any better place than going back to Revelation to be amazed at who Christ is and that he is worthy. Even as you come to, you know, worthy is the one, Because even they're, they're wondering who is worthy, right, to open the scroll. And it is Christ and Christ alone. And so it's not just about future, right? It's, that, it's not just this big symbol imagery of, of kind of Armageddon and all those things. But it is about worshiping Christ. And it's even more practical as well. So it's not only as it chiefly is about Christ, but he wants to engage with you and, and ask some questions over this idea of blessing. And it's not just blessing, but the blessing comes through. And this isn't new, right? It's Deuteronomy. Verse three, blessed is he who not only reads, but he who hears. And in the Jewish mind, hearing is not like my children. When it's, you know turn the TV off, they heard it but they didn't hear it, right? In the Jewish mind, hearing is obedience, changes the way they act. So hear the words of the prophecy and he clarifies, and keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. Likewise, when you jump down to 22, uh, we're talking about the time is near, it's behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. All I can say is, Revelation is important enough to say, and it should be, he clearly expects it to be clear enough that you should get out of Revelation something that causes you to live a certain way. And you'll be accountable to live that way. And that is why, as people go, I don't want to study, I don't want to preach the Revelation, it's too confusing. I go, I think we have to. And if we have to fight along the way and be a little bit more like, well, I'm not a thousand percent sure this is exactly the way it's going to happen. I think it's okay. Because we want to be faithful. We want to believe this is true, that there is a blessing that comes. And to say there are things in here that we need to know, that we need to be doing. Particularly, you can see it in the churches. And this is written to churches in the first century. They need it. We definitely need it. And I think as you understand, um, the coming, as he calls it, the great tribulation, that generation is going to need it all the more as well. But don't be tricked into thinking that you don't need it. It's interesting as well. We won't talk too much about this, but in Revelation, there's actually seven blessings. Um, so that's interesting as well, because you have the seven Beatitudes of Matthew, and Revelation has, if you marked them out, seven different blessings. But that perspective and understanding, you don't go to Revelation just to know more, Right? You go to Revelation because you want to know more about Christ and you want to be encouraged. You want to be excited about his coming. And then lastly, we're just going to talk about this, that there is this idea of uh, just basic Bible study. So those of you who haven't been here a long time, when I look and I come to a book, I, I come and I come and look for these five things. And I think you have to know them and you have to have them in the back of your head if you're going to properly understand um, the book. Because this is just the way language works and the text is clear. And the tool I think you lastly need is you're going to have to have a proper understanding of these five things. A proper understanding of who the author is. We're not going to talk too much this morning about all these things. We'll just touch briefly and then we'll we'll dive a little deeper into all these verses uh, in the coming week. But of the author of who the audience is, both in the New Testament, right? Original. There's seven churches in Asia Minor which you guys should all look at your map, by the way. It's really interesting. Patmos, where John is going to be writing from, it's just off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, and these churches, and you'll even see the the way the letters work. It's along the postal route. Um, But these seven churches that he is going to address, they need these letters. And so, of course, you go, who's the original audience? But also you have an understanding of, well, why did the Holy Spirit see fit To not only make this just for them, but for for the church today as well. What do we need to learn from this? And I think as well, you could say the churches, as far as an audience goes, um, they're clearly, I believe, these seven churches founded by Paul that John is then writing to. But there's a way in which you say, yeah, they're very much, they are representative of different churches with different issues. Whether it's doctrinal error or whether it's the Ephesus church that has doctrinal clarity, but yet they've gone cold. They've lost their first love. Again, that becomes important of who wrote it. Because if you don't understand who wrote it and who he wrote to, it's difficult to get to the other important sides of this. Because this idea of occasion, I think this is helpful. And it just I get to these answers by asking simple questions. What prompted this writing? Basically, what would be lost if Revelation was never written? Well, there seems to be over and over again, not only for the original audience, but I would say for us as well, that there is an urgency. So I would say the occasion is that the time is near. Verse 3, which written, why? For the time is near. When you go to chapter 20, because the time is here. And then over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, you're going to see quickly, soon, quickly, soon, quickly, soon. They're saying, you need this information now. We'll probably talk more as we get there um, in coming weeks as we're going to run into a lot, even with, say, verse one um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his slaves the things which must soon happen. We're going to be confronted with that because it's all depends on how you define soon, right? How soon is soon. Some of that is, I think, understood on God's timetable is not our timetable, but also the way they're using "soon" is not the way we would use "soon." And you can probably see that in different cultures. You know, um, people, I'm coming over soon. That can be a little relative, right? Depending on who you who, who you're dealing with. But it, but their minds. All that is being highlighted here is that this is the next thing that is going to happen. If you look at Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told to seal up the scroll. And guess what John's told to do? The opposite, right? Don't seal it up. Let it be known. Why? Because the next thing on the prophetic calendar, if you want to think of it that way, is these events that are coming. And that is, I think we all need to live in that idea, we'll call it imminence, that that these things are coming and they're the next thing that's how you need to understand that i know we kind of immediately hear soon and quickly and go well that's right something's going to happen this coming week look at the purpose purpose and theme tend to always flow out of one another as you look at and you study books of the bible but the purpose being to reveal jesus christ and i would say as well it's not only just to reveal jesus christ but then also to bless his followers to encourage them and you're going to see throughout one two and three this idea of overcome 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 it's very practical book it's very practical in that it's meant to encourage them to continue to hold fast in light of all the persecution that is happening. And again, a purpose is always seemingly related to that idea of a central theme, which is not surprising about Christ, but particularly about Christ, that he is coming. And then it's going to flesh out in this book every which way, every chapter is going to touch on what the coming of Jesus Christ means. And every chapter is going to point right back to that simple theme and understanding. And so as we begin our study of Revelation and you look at these tools, you got to come in an understanding of the proper way to interpret scripture. You really need to continue. And I would encourage you, don't just read Revelation, but read Isaiah. Or if you want to, go read certain, certain prophetic parts of those books to grasp an understanding of. But it, some of that's just coming with all of us through our own study and our own time. Come to it in a way that is not simply head knowledge, but that you want to know Christ. You want to be called to worship. And then come with a proper understanding of, like you would with any book, of understanding there is a purpose behind it and everything is driving back towards it. And this really should, I think, as we look, cause us um, to be encouraged and as well too many people, I think, as you look at what you think is a biblical truth, that the world is getting worse. I think that's true. Um, what's our engagement with it? And I think Revelation has a lot to say about that. It's not only personally, but I think as churches, this idea of being overcomers should not be overlooked. And I think too often we're kind of, you look at Revelation and say, well, all things going to pan out in the end, but there's more to it. Um, and I think more that we as a church can learn from it. So I'm excited as we begin to study together um, this book and we dive in and look at what it is for Christ to be revealed and to be a church excited about his return, knowing that it entails both that he is the judge, but that he is the savior as well. And over and over again, uh, like three times in Revelation, you see that phrase that he will wipe every tear. And you're going to be drawn in to say, I don't know when it'll be, but your heart should cry out that, come Lord, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we have been given this morning just to look at Revelation. And although it can be in its own way a challenging book, it assumes that we are going to be diligent to be faithful To accurately divide, to cut straight the Word of God. Lord, help us to be diligent over these coming weeks and months to engage, to study, to prepare, as well as, Lord, not to forget what this is ultimately about as we see Christ revealed in His fullness and all of heaven worshiping him and us there with him, worshiping. Encourage us with that truth, Lord, as we even do deal with struggles of daily life, reminding us that it is Christ, as we cling to him, that enables us to be ones who overcome. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.